It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. There are 14 rewards promised to overcomers in the book of Revelation. And when you see all of those rewards, it provides a fantastic panoramic view of our inheritance in Christ eternally. And I would urge you to dig into this subject and it will give you a greater appreciation of who you are in Christ and what awaits you. Now in episode 80, I laid the groundwork by sharing the things God has done for us and God imparts to us to grant us the status of being overcomers. And then in episode 81, I shared the first seven rewards of the book of Revelation, the impartations promised to overcomers. Now, on this episode, I'm going to share reward number eight through reward number 14. We're going to cover a lot of territory, but it's going to be very enriching, I guarantee it. Now, in last week's episode, the first seven rewards promised to overcomers are as follows. Number one, the tree of life. Number two, the crown of life. Number three, not being hurt by the second death. Number four, hidden manna. Number five, a white stone with your name engraved in it, and most likely that's your eternal name. Number six, power over the nations. And number seven, Jesus said he would grant you the morning star. What deep insights are provided by those seven rewards? Now, in most versions of the scripture, we read the phrase, he who overcomes shall receive this or receive that. But in the Aramaic Bible in plain English, Revelation chapter 3 verse 21 says, I will grant the overcomer to sit with me in my throne. And so it actually imparts this title to you. And that's why we've included it in this series. Now let's begin with the number eight reward found in Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 in the message to the church at Sardis. Jesus said, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. What an impossibility that is. There is no way you ever could have achieved that status religiously or spiritually by human effort because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has a stained garment. And how could you ever appear before the king of heaven in white garments? We're told in Revelation chapter 7, verses 14 through 17. And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out of great tribulation. See, John saw a great multitude that no man could number. And he said, Who are these? And the answer was, These are the ones who came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And the next verse says, Therefore, 
They are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall dwell among them and they shall hunger no more nor thirst any more, nor will the sun light on them nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will feed them and lead them to living fountains of water. So there are many promises given to those who have dirty robes but they wash those robes in the blood of the lamb. Now, normally blood stains. Have you ever thought of that? If you get a blood stain on a shirt or a piece of clothing, a lot of times you can't get it out. It makes that piece of clothing useless. But quite the opposite, with the blood of Jesus, it doesn't stain your garment. It removes every stain. And why is this even important? Why would the promise be that you would receive white robes? Because one of our primary needs as human beings is to receive a spiritual covering. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, one of the first things Adam and Eve recognized after the fall was that they were naked. And God even asked them, who told you you were naked? Well, the thing that revealed that to them was their own conscience. They had this sense that something was wrong, that something had left them, that they no longer had a spiritual covering. Well, what was that covering? In Psalm 104, the Bible says that God clothes himself with light as with a garment. And so God's garments are made up of light. Think of that not material made out of cotton or linen, but God's garments are made of light. And apparently in their perfected state in the very beginning, Adam and Eve had garments made up of the glory of God's radiance. And when the glory of God departed from them because they were in the image of God, if God clothes himself with light, God must have clothed them with light. Yet when they fell from their relationship with God, they no longer had that covering. And from that point forward, they were searching for a way to cover their nakedness spiritually. Fig leaves proved insufficient. The fig is a many-seeded fruit. I've been very well acquainted with figs because as a boy growing up, we had a fig tree in our backyard, and I loved to just go there and pluck the figs off the tree and eat them, and they were luscious. They were good when they weren't processed, but fresh from the tree. But one thing I noticed in the beginning was those figs had many seeds inside of them, and maybe trying to cover themselves with fig leaves was symbolic in nature because there are many religions, many philosophies, many modes of spirituality that men try to cover their spiritual nakedness with, but they're all insufficient because the fig leaf has a strange quality about it. It can be big and broad, but as soon as you pluck it off the tree, within a few minutes, it shrinks to about one-fourth of its original size. So what Adam and Eve thought was a sufficient covering soon proved to be insufficient. And uh, I won't go any more in describing the look on their faces when they realized that. But all of that is metaphorical because, see, we had to have clothing from God. But it's not just from God. It involves a dual effort. 
Look at the clothing I have on right now. If you're viewing this as the video podcast on our YouTube channel, the shirt I have on right now is made up of threads that run vertically and horizontally, up and down and from side to side woven together. And neither by itself would be sufficient. The vertical threads by themselves would not provide a sufficient covering because you could see right through it. The horizontal threads would not provide a sufficient covering because they would fall down around my waist immediately. But woven together, they make a piece of clothing that I cover myself with. And the righteousness that is attributed to saints is also dual in nature. Let me give you a scripture. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. God said, sow to yourself in righteousness and reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness down on you. So you sow to yourself in righteousness. That's your own self-effort at being righteous. But then you qualify yourself to receive an impartation knowing that your seed will remain dormant in the ground and it will not be fully manifested until God rains down imparted righteousness. And then God's imparted righteousness is like the vertical threads and your human effort at righteousness is like the horizontal threads. And that provides a cross too. (laughs) And through the cross, that was where the Son of God was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so there's a great mystery to that. But when God gives you white garments, thank God, that implies to me restored spiritual virginity. In the natural, once you lose your virginity, you can never gain it back. That's impossible. That's why you should be very careful about reserving yourself until the day of marriage. But spiritually restored virginity is a possibility because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2 Paul said he had espoused that church to Christ as a chaste virgin the only way that is possible is if your robes your dirty filthy robes are washed in the blood of Jesus thank god for that next also to the church at Sardis He said, he that overcomes, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, the book of life is probably also the same book referred to as the book of the living in scripture and a book of remembrance. And there are other books. Apparently, each individual believer, each individual human being has a book on his or her own life. But there's something called the Book of Life that contains a roll of the names of those who will be granted eternal life. However, there is a lot of mystery attached to this idea of the Book of Life. I might do a program just on this subject because in some scriptures it implies that your name is actually written in the Book of Life from the foundation of the world before you even get here. In fact, let me read Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. The writer said, The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition, and those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names were not written 
in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So everyone by this scripture, whose name was not written in the book of life from the very beginning from the foundation, will be duped and deceived by the Antichrist, at least those who are alive in that era, in the day that he strides out on the platform politically and governmentally in this world. So that makes it sound like there's a predestined people. And yet, when God said that he would not blot our names out of the book of life if we overcome, that implies that every living human being who's ever come into this world is written in the book of life. And so your goal is not to have your name written in the book, but to make sure that your name is not blotted out of the book. Because those who live a wicked life, who turn their hearts against God, who rebel, their names are removed. So there's somewhat of a mystery on which of those is true and how you relate to this particular subject. I do want to mention a few other scriptures related to the book of life. Psalms 56 verse 8 says, you number my wanderings. In other words, you know when I'm falling short. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Tears of what? Remorse over having failed in a certain area in your life. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? So apparently in the book of life, God gets very detailed about the sorrow, the grief that's been in your life, the wanderings that have taken place, the successes, the triumphs that you've walked into. It's very detailed. And then in Psalm 69, verse 28, the psalmist is talking about the wicked, and he says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Now, whether or not the book of life and the book of the living are two separate books is up to question. But it could be the same book, and it could be that the wicked were once written in that book as being a living, breathing human being, but then their names are blotted out of the book. And I love Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. The psalmist said, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You ought to confess that about yourself. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. So in that book, from the very beginning, details about your future are included. Isn't that amazing? You should go back and ponder that. Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. And then I love Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke one to another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and those who meditate on his name. And they shall be mine, says the Lord, on that day when I make them my jewels. Wow. So 
God is going to remember all the good things, all the wonderful things, all the righteous things, all the beneficial things, all the godly conversations that you've had, and that will incentivize him in a sense to turn you from a rugged piece of coal into an eternal diamond. Isn't that interesting? A lot of companies offer you diamond status. I'd much rather have diamond status in the kingdom of God and be one of those that he turns into a jewel forever and ever. Praise God. Well, much more can be said about that because the book of life is mentioned about 14 times in scripture. And as I said, we might do a program just on that at some time in the future. But the 10th reward promised to the overcomer warms my heart. Again, to the church at Sardis, he said, he who overcomes, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. Can you imagine the day when millions of angels are surrounding the throne of the Almighty God and the King of all ages, the creator of the universe, brings you before his throne and he pronounces your name, the eternal name that he's given you as an heir of all the best that heaven can provide and declares you to be an overcomer. Can you imagine the spectacular, unspeakable joy that will explode in you when God himself calls your name and witnesses to all that hear that you have walked the road of an overcomer. How amazing is that? And then the 11th promise to the overcomer was made to the church at Philadelphia. And even though these were individual messages to individual churches, I believe they are corporate promises to the entire body of Christ. In verse 12 of chapter 3, the resurrected Christ said, He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Isn't that amazing that Jesus will have a new name? Why would he have a new name? Because whenever God bestows a name on himself, it's a revelation of what he is doing at that moment in the progression of his plan. And the name Jesus, or the original Yeshua in Hebrew, means salvation. Well, in eternity, he won't be saving anyone anymore. He'll be filling a new role. So that will make it necessary to have a new name. And you and I will be filling a new role. So he's going to engrave his name into pillar-like individuals that will be a part of the supporting structure of the government of God forever. So his name being engraved in us implies to me that we will be completely a part of this establishment of a new creation and that we will be kings reigning with him. He said, I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. Now, four things are revealed by this promise. First, that we are a supporting pillar in the kingdom which is yet to come. That you will have a place of responsibility in that kingdom. Number two, 
It reveals a permanent status that you will go no more out. You will never return to a sinful state. Forever you will be stable in your covenant connection to God. Number three, it reveals that we will know to whom we belong forever. And number four, it means we will know where we belong forever. And those are comforting things to know who you belong to and where you belong. Number 12, in Revelation 3.21 to the church at Laodicea, he said, I will grant the overcomer to sit with me on my throne just as I have overcome and I sit with my father on his throne. The throne is the position of rest because your feet are propped up on the head of your enemies. He said, I will make your enemies your footstool. So it's the place of peace and rest and victory and authority and dominion. So to sit with God in his throne is to share divine dominion over the new creation. No wonder you walk through the coals of hell on this journey to eternity because you have proven yourself worthy of occupying such a role of immense authority. It is no small thing to share the throne of God. And if that's a futuristic thing, then in a spiritual sense, it's true right here, right now as well, because Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So to a limited degree, we can now at this present time, not just wait for this to happen, but we can enjoy rest and peace and victory and triumph and dominion during this earthly sojourn. Dare to speak because the throne is the position of decree, decreeing the promises of God and expecting strongholds to fall. Now, the last two promises are contained in the same verse together. Revelation 21, verse 7. He says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. And then the 14th promise, he said, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. First, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. Now, of course, that's a corporate promise for the whole body of Christ, not an individual promise, but all those who are married to God in a covenant relationship forever will inherit all things. I believe that includes all things celestial and all things terrestrial. The meek shall inherit the earth. We will be God's occupation force in this world, restoring it to an Eden paradise status. But we will also inherit the celestial expanses. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus 2,000 years ago said, I go to prepare a place for you. And it's much more than just a mansion on a hillside. He says, you will inherit all things. But he left the greatest promise till last. Because up until now, he's talking about things that will be given to you, like a crown of life, like access to the tree of life. But the last of all the promises is relationship. Not something, but someone. He said, I will be his God and he shall be my son. In other words, there's a spiritual kind of DNA that will be transferred to us where we emerge as sons of God in a fully manifested way at the resurrection in the image of our heavenly father. 
What that entails, only eternity will reveal. But it also implies that the greatest of all rewards is not something, but someone having a relationship with God that is never-ending. And that, friend, is the greatest of all rewards. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given His people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.